Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Now I want you to notice tonight with me part of the message that Jesus has for the church in Thyatira. Now we know that um, at one time that this uh, church had a, had a prominent member by the name of Lydia. She was of the city of Thyatira. Remember, she was the seller of purple that had been saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But uh, by the time that, that this letter was now addressed to the, the church in Thyatira, there was a great problem that this church experienced. And we're going to notice that tonight as we notice verses 18 down through verse 29. So let's notice Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And unto the angel or the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I, <clears throat> I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to, to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with the death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not known this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." One of the things about Jesus, because he is God, he is all-knowing. And there's nothing that escapes the eyes of Christ. Even what we consider to be secret is open to God. You know, I know that we can fool others with what we do. There may be things in your life tonight that, that no one knows about. And, and you may be sitting there tonight and, and, and I may be living my life in such a way that there are things in my life and things in your life that we don't know. I mean, we fooled each other. We put the mask on. But the thing is, God knows because there's nothing we can do that, that can be hidden from the eyes of the Lord. We, we can even mask our attitudes we can often mask our attitudes with a smile. We can come up to people that maybe we don't like or maybe that we know that don't like us and we can come up to them and put a smile on our face and, and, and just act like that we really like them when deep down we don't. 
God knows that that attitude's in our life as well. Even though we may have hidden it from that person who's the object of our disdain, God still knows. See, we can't fool Christ. And that's why in the Old Testament that we're given the warning, be sure your sin will find you out. Because the thing about it is, is even though we may have secret sins in our life, even though we may have attitudes toward others in our lives that no one knows about, sooner or later, those things come out. Do you remember when David thought that he had covered up his great sin with Bathsheba? God still knew. And God had a way of relaying that to the prophet Nathan. And as a a result of David's trying to hide his sin, it came out into the open. Now, when you come to the church at Thyatira here, Jesus saw that church. And on the outside, it all may have looked very good. But when Jesus saw this church, what he saw angered him. And that anger can be seen even in the very introduction of this letter when the Bible says he he had eyes as, as a flame of fire. When Jesus looked at this church, he was so angered by it that he had fire in his eyes as he began to see what was going on in that church. You see, one of the things that we need to realize is that Jesus never takes a nonchalant view towards sin. Sometimes we have the idea we can just overlook the sins that are in our lives and overlook the sins that are in the lives of others and overlook the sin that's in the life of our church. Jesus never does that. Jesus Christ did not save us so we could live a life of sin. He saved us so that we could be holy. He saved us so that we could produce fruit. He saved us so that the characteristics in our life would honor the Father and that people could see the Father in us. And what Jesus saw in this church was something that angered him. And when, what Jesus saw angered him so much that he was on the verge of judging this church. That's why the Bible talks about Jesus' feet as being as a fine brass. Brass in the Bible always symbolizes judgment. Do you remember in the Old Testament, one of the first articles in the, in the tabernacle and temple that you came to was the brazen altar or the brass altar. It was there that the, that the sacrifice was made for our sin, and it was the sacrifice that basically judged our sin. <clears throat> the brass always represents judgment. And I think it's also interesting <clears throat> in Old Testament times that, that when a conqueror came in and he conquered a, a country, They would capture the kings of that country. And then what the conqueror would do is he would have those conquered kings come before him and he and all of his generals would then put their feet upon the neck of that conquered enemy to denote that they were ruling over him and that he was judged. Here Jesus' feet are seen as fine brass because Jesus was fixing to judge the sin here that he saw in this church. You see, sin not only angers God, but sin also demands his correction. Sin also demands his discipline. Haven't we ever read in the Bible that whom the father loves, he chastens and scourges his son? Sometimes in our day and time, we think it's an act of love never to discipline the child. But yet the Bible says the greatest act of love that a parent can have for his children is to discipline those kids. And God disciplines his. And here we're going to see that God disciplines a sin that he has seen in the life of of this church. 
Now, there are two things that I want you to notice about this church tonight. We're going to notice a very practical lesson from this passage, and then there's going to be a spiritual lesson that I want us to notice. First of all, let's notice the practical lesson, because the root problem of this church centered around a woman within her membership by the name of Jezebel. Now, the woman here, the Bible says, had called herself a prophetess. Notice that her call did not come from God, it came from self. She was calling herself that. God didn't call her that. She had called herself into the ministry. Now let's understand something. In the Old and New Testament, there were prophetesses. Remember, Deborah was a prophetess. And you come down and find Huldah in the, in the Old Testament that was a prophetess. And so here was a woman that, that looked at that and she was calling herself that. Now folks, let's understand there is a call to the ministry. You remember what, what Paul said in the, in, the, in the New Testament? He said that if any man desires the office of a bishop, and that call to the ministry comes from a great desire that God puts in a man's life. It is a desire, first of all, I believe, to see people saved. Don't you want someone who preaches to you to have a desire to see people saved? Hmm? I mean, that ought to be one of the greatest desires that we have. Even as a church, we ought to come, even though we have a small crowd tonight, it, it ought to be the, the very heart breath of our soul tonight to say, Oh God, if there's just one person lost here tonight, save them by, for, for your glory's sake. Because that's the desire of God's heart, to see people saved. And, and it ought to be that great desire that propels a man into the ministry, a desire to see people saved. I think there's another desire that propels a man into the ministry, and that's the desire to see God's people grow and, and see God's people mature in the faith. Now, folks, one of the saddest things that goes on in many of our churches tonight is the fact that there have been people in our church all their life and they've never grown any spiritually. Now, I love little babies. And, and, and it just tickles me to death to see Denton and, and Adrian bring their little baby to church, to see Bill and Jenny bring their little baby to church. And, and it's just going to be a joy to have baby dedication day next week, isn't it? But you know, two years from now, Bill and Jenny's little baby doesn't need to be eight pounds. Hmm? Fifteen years from now, Bill and Jenny don't need to be carrying their little baby in a baby holder. Hmm? Fifteen years from now, he may be breaking their heart, but they need to, you know. We, we look at children and we look at people and we want to see growth in their life, don't we? And the same thing is true spiritually. It's wonderful to see people saved. We ought to want to see people saved. But we also ought to want to see the people within our church growing spiritually. We ought to want to see them becoming Sunday school teachers and leading people to Christ and growing in their prayer life and learning how to forgive and all the other things that are involved in the Christian faith. <coughs> and that's one of the reasons that God calls men to the ministry to equip them to do the work of the ministry to watch them grow and to watch them mature and then I think the third thing that God uses is a great desire to see a church to lead a church to catch a vision and to be the church God wants it to be 
Now, folks, we up until, uh, the, you know, we, we've had a couple of uh, or uh, three or four Sundays when our attendance has been down here, hasn't it? But you know what I've seen? Even though our attendance has been down, there's one thing that I've been encouraged by. The folks that have been gone are regular attenders. And we'll get them back eventually. We better. Yeah. And when they come back, and when our visitors continue to come, and when others continue to come, folks, it's not going to be long before we see on Sunday morning this building more than three-quarters way full. That ought to be the vision we have. It ought to be the vision that we have that this church grows, that we reach out, that we become an influence on our city. Folks, we ought to have a vision of what the church wants to be, what God wants His church to be. And that's what, how God calls and leads people into the ministry, by giving them a vision. And it is a God-centered vision around the belief that God has put these desires in our hearts and will never be what God wants us to be until we answer that call. Now, how do you know that Jezebel wasn't called? Well, for one thing, she used her position to promote immorality. One of the saddest things to hear today is the number of of people in in, in our world today that are in the office of pastor that have used that position to seduce other people to immorality. That's what this lady did. Not only did she seduce the the members of the church to commit immorality, kind of like Eli's two sons did in the Old Testament, but but she was also urging her disciples to eat things that were offered to idols. And it revealed that her heart was locked in paganism. In biblical times, they had idols. And what you did is you had a communal meal there as you worshipped the idol. And often there was immorality involved in that idol worship. And what this lady had done, she had gotten herself in the church of Jesus Christ and she was now using her position to pervert the church into actually becoming a place that worshipped idols the pagan idols of its day. And folks, when the devil gets one of his in a position of authority, especially in a church or a Christian college, he can undermine the faith of many of God's people. That's what's happened down through the years, even in our day and time as well. Now notice what Jesus said to her in verse 21. Jesus said, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Jesus said, I gave her a little time to repent, because it's always God's desire for people to repent rather than be judged. Do you remember that before the days of Noah, he gave them 120 years to repent? Before Sodom and Gomorrah fell, he gave them opportunity to repent. God would much rather see people turn from their sin and embrace him than he would to unleash the fires of judgment. And even in this case, as awful as this sin was, he gave her space to repent. Now folks, listen. When a church has an unruly member or a heretic... We have also been given a formula to follow. That person is to be confronted and rebuked. And in doing so, they're to be given time to repent. Amen? Now, doesn't the Bible tell us that we're to restore that person who's fallen? And the people that are spiritual are to be the ones that are about this ministry of restoration, bringing a wayward brother back. 
whether that person is an unruly person that's causing division in the church or whether that person is just flat out of line biblically and doctrinally. And the Bible says that after the first and second admonition, that person is then to be rejected and disfellowshipped from the church. Now, folks, listen. As much as we want people in the church, we don't want the faith of the sheep to be undermined by a wolf in sheep's clothing. Amen? Down through the years in most of our churches, when a church has had problems, let's be honest, we knew where the problem was at. Come on, don't, didn't we? But the problem was we didn't want to deal with the problem. So as a result, the problem got worse, and eventually it affected everybody in the church and hurt everybody in the church. This woman was doing the same thing in Thyatira. Now, now God gave her space to repent, and we're also to confront, we're also to rebuke, we're also to give folks the opportunity to repent. But if they won't repent, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that that person is then to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now listen to me. If a true believer doesn't repent under the disciplinary action of the church, the Bible talks about there is a sin unto death and that person will lose their life. If they're a true believer. Now what happens, Brother Mike, if they're not a true believer? What happens if the church disciplines somebody who's unruly? Or if the church disciplines somebody who, who, who is teaching heresy in the church? And we have to disfellowship that person and, and, and they just go out and go on their own happy way. Then that tells me they were never saved to start with. And do we need lost people teaching in our church? Do we need lost people as officers in the church? What do we need to do with lost people? Get them saved, amen? Get them saved. And so we're told what to do here uh, in this. And I realize that we don't see church discipline today. I, I understand that. The last time I've ever seen someone disciplined in a church is when I was a kid and it scared me to death. I wondered that they were going to get me next. And maybe one of the reasons why we don't see church discipline in our churches today is because we have a desire not to offend anyone, even the devil's crowd. But listen, the devil's crowd doesn't mind offending God's people. The devil's crowd in the church doesn't mind hurting the little sheep. The devil's crowd in the church doesn't mind hurting the shepherd. And so if there's a problem in the church that needs fixing, folks, we don't need to worry about who we're offending as long as we're doing it God's way and not offending Him. I think sometimes one of the reasons why maybe we don't discipline folks is because we don't feel spiritual enough to carry out discipline on another. And the Bible does say this in the book of Galatians, ye, that, that we need to consider ourselves lest we be tempted. And I know that down through the years, as I've read through church minutes, a lot of times church discipline was carried out the wrong way. And it was carried out the wrong way because it wasn't the spiritual people involved doing it. Folks, listen, if we're going to discipline people in church, then we've got to be spiritual ourselves. And not do it with a desire to hurt somebody. Not do it with a desire to show everybody how good I am. But do it with a broken heart. Now, my kids never understood that when I spanked them, I didn't want to spank them. 
Hmm? And one day, praise God, they will have kids and it'll be God's way of getting even for what they put me through. But we need to be spiritual. And I think the main reason that we don't discipline folks is it's just easier to let things slide. It's just easier to overlook things. Because let's be honest, if you're like I am, you don't like confrontation. If you're like I am, you don't like getting in somebody's face, amen? Hmm? Come on, how many of you are like, way? It's just easier to let it slide. And we've done that in our churches to our own detriment. Now, because we haven't disciplined sin in the church, often we see divisions, often we see false doctrine, and often we've seen a loss of spiritual power. Now, let's notice, secondly, the spiritual lesson. And the spiritual lesson is simply this. I believe that Jezebel was a literal person. I believe she literally committed these sins. But I also believe that there, there was a spiritual application to what we find here. Because when you began to read the Bible, one of these things you see is that God considers sin to be spiritual adultery against Him. Now, folks, we have a bridal relationship with Jesus Christ. As you began to read Ephesians chapter 5, we see that. There, Paul uses the marriage relationship to describe the relationship that Christ has to his church. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, as the husband is to the wife, so Christ is also to the church. And Paul goes on to describe what marriage relationship is to be using Jesus and his church as an example. Because we have a bridal relationship with Christ. Now, folks, there are two indispensable things that you've got to have to have a good marriage. First of all, there has to be love in that relationship at home. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus. Paul says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, if there's not love in the relationship between the husband and the wife... You may have two people living together, but you don't have a home. Amen? And believers, what have we been told? We're to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and strength, as we looked at this morning. Why? Because Jesus loved us with a sacrificial and an unconditional love. And the love we have in our homes is to reveal to the world the kind of love that it should exist between a believer and his God. So there's got to be love in the home, right? Come on. Secondly, there has to be faithfulness in a marriage relationship. Is God faithful to us? Absolutely. What's one of the things that Jesus said to us? I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is faithful to us. And even when we, we, we mess up, even when we sin, He's still faithful to us. And there is security in Christ because of His great faithfulness to us. But you know, he also expects faithfulness from us. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, let's just look at this for just a moment. Can an adulterer really say that he loves his spouse? Not really. Can adulterers actually say, I'm faithful? I've been faithful 99% of the time we've been married. Ladies, how many of you would accept that from your husband? I've only been faithful one day in our entire marriage. 
and that's the day you died. <laughs> no, we expect in the marriage relationship that there be love and what else? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, that is what God calls us when we stray from Him. He calls us adulterers and adulteresses. Do you remember what James said? He said that those that turn to the, love, to the world and love the world more than God, he addresses them in the book of James chapter 4 and he says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now how would you like it next Sunday morning if I were to say, I want to welcome all of you adulterers and adulteresses to church. You'd get angry, right? How about this welcome that Jesus gave his. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. We wouldn't like that either. And yet sometimes that's how God has to look at us because of the way we live. The Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And sin angers Jesus just as much as an unfaithful partner would grieve and anger the faithful partner. Now, do you see how serious that sin is? Folks, listen, we often sin, and we don't even stop to think about how serious it is. Sin put Jesus on the cross. That's serious to start with, is it not? Sin angers God as a faithful spouse would be angered by an unfaithful spouse. Sin grieves God as he often has to see us do that over and over again. Much like Hosea had to watch the life of his bride, Gomer, go out and ply her trade. It angers him. Sin is serious business with God. And I believe that it reveals how we ought to be broken when we sin. Folks, we don't, we're not broken anymore over sin anymore. We don't mourn over sin like we used to. We don't grieve over sin like we used to. We call sin a sickness. We call sin a mistake. We call it everything but God calls it, and God calls it sin. And I believe that this illustration reveals how we ought to repent with a broken heart when we do sin. Now, Jesus will give us space to repent. Because, listen, he wants us home. He wants us home. One of the hardest things that I ever had to do when I was in Idabel, Oklahoma, our music director had, had sinned and, and with a young teenage girl in our church. And after he had been confronted and after I had to, to dismiss him as music director in our church, he looked at me and he said, Brother Mike, would you come home with me while I tell my wife? Now, I didn't say I'd be glad to. I said, I'll go with you. Because the need there was to rebuild his family now. We needed to be redemptive, amen. He went home. He shared with her what had happened. She looked at me and said, can you leave? I said, I'd be glad to. <laughs> but you know what? Gigi took him back. They rebuilt their home. They rebuilt their marriage relationship. They had two little kids. It took grace on her part to do that. Most wives wouldn't have done that, but she did, and they rebuilt their home. Because, you know, I think that's a mirrored reflection of what God does with us. We come home, and, Lord, I've sinned against you, and God forgives. Aren't you glad God's forgiving? And he restores. Aren't you glad God's in the restoration business?
And when it's all said and done, there can be revival. Shortly before I left Oklahoma, I went by and had an opportunity to, to visit with Chris. And, and he said, you know, Brother Mike, he said, my life's better now than it's ever been before. He said, I never should have done what I did, but he said, my relationship with my wife, is, is we're, we're rebuilding that. And he said, it really shook me to my foundations for, to make me realize I could do something so stupid. By the way, folks, we can all do something so stupid. Come on. But he said, I've experienced God's forgiveness. Folks, that's what God wants to do in our lives as we sin against him. He wants us to realize we messed up. And he wants us to come back to him to experience his forgiveness. And when we do, we can leave with a revived heart. Revived heart.